Welcome to Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids. My name is Robin Robertson, and I am the creator and host of this podcast. I'm so happy that you've joined me here. I just want to say that our 100th episode is coming closer, and I really think that it should be an episode of celebration or a time of celebration. Um, We've been trying to get different ideas. I would love to hear some more ideas from all of you out there that are listening, something that you might um, appreciate hearing a little bit more on or seeing. One of the things I was thinking about is possibly a giveaway, and if there are any topics or resources books, anything along those lines that you've personally appreciated, that you've heard from the show, that have really stood out to you, just let me know what you think would be a great add to the giveaway. And I also wanted to mention that we have another unschooling Q&A via Zoom coming up, and I'm pretty excited about it. It's going to be on February the 20th at 1 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, and it's going to be myself, Golda David, who is a past guest. She's an educator and an unschooling mom. Uh, Definitely check out her episode on the podcast, as well as Judy Arnell. You would have just heard Judy on the show. She had a very recent episode. She's a mom to five grown unschoolers, as well as an advocate to self-directed learning. So the three of us will be holding another Zoom Q&A session. We will be recording it as well, and the recording will be available to watch after for patrons on our Patreon community. Uh, But otherwise, come and make the live Zoom Q&A, bring your questions, but we'd also like to do a deeper dive into the questions that we talked about and answered before as well. So just uh, check out social media, Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids, to find out the link and more information on that, or join my email list where I'll be sending out links directly through that as well, as well as further information. So if you've been following or checking in on social media this month for Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids, you'll know that I've been focusing on math on the idea of math, how math can work in unschooling, uh, spreading joy in math, looking at different ways to see math within the world. It's always a great conversation because I find just that four-letter word, and we're going to call it the four-letter word because for some it's a four-letter word in a different connotation, it can bring up a lot of emotion or even anxiety or fear for some. Not everyone has great experiences in math and learning and their education with math. And I think that's something that I hope we can shift and change, especially when it comes to learning from home, self-directed learning, unschooling. So this episode, I actually have a very special guest, my mother-in-law. I asked her to come on the show because I think she is someone who can really speak well to this. She's a retired teacher, Uh, She is a math educator, and she is a former homeschooling parent. She homeschooled my husband and my brother-in-law for about four or five years, and she gives great insight because she is someone who did not find the joy in math or was not able to really start looking at the world through a math lens until she was much older. Uh, So we talk about first her experience of homeschooling, and then we start to get into the topic of math. How do we introduce math in a joy-driven way? Uh, What about the deeper learning? And how can we look at the world through a math lens, especially if we've never really experienced the joy in math or been able to see the math in the world around us before as an adult? We also talk about the tools that most of us most likely already have within ourselves and within our home environment that we can use to support confidence and joy in learning, especially when it comes to math. So I would love to hear your feedback. 
Let me know if you have any questions and enjoy this episode. Today, my special guest is my mother-in-law, Monica Robertson. (laughs) I'm excited to have her on. So Monica is, as I said, my mother-in-law. She is also a teacher, uh, a math educator, and she was a homeschool mom as well. She homeschooled my husband and my brother-in-law, her two sons, for quite a few years. So I'm actually pretty excited to have her on because of the wealth of experience that she brings and I know that she will give to everyone that's listening here as well today. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Moni. Maybe you can just tell a little bit about Uh, your journey into really your lifelong journey of lifelong learning (laughs) is really what it is. How did you begin homeschooling? Because you were a homeschooling parent before you were a teacher. Oh, hi, Robin. Um, Thank you for having me as your guest today. I'm I'm nervous and excited at the same time. It's, uh, it allows me to talk about things that I feel very passionate about. Um, And so, the whole journey into home education was um, a little bit tumultuous. I actually didn't finish high school, um, and and then I was married quite young, and so I didn't have a lot of uh, confidence in the education domain. But when our sons um, were in school and we began to observe the ways that they changed their character, actually changed going to school. And it wasn't just, you know, because they were maturing, but their whole behavior, behavioral attitudes moved from away from their gener- from their basic personality. And so, and I saw the oldest one lose confidence in himself and his ability to to do things, especially in the area of mathematics and reading. And so he was having a very difficult year in grade five, and he um, he would come home with a lot of with a lot of homework and didn't really <clears throat> didn't want to sit down and do it. And so every time we would have him sit to do his homework, then he it would always it would usually end up in tears. Um, and it was usually over math. Um, but he was losing interest in learning, and so he <clears throat> so I felt that I had to do something to um, to change that course before it got really bad. So I started um, researching the different things that I could do. And some people in the area had started to do homeschooling. Um, mostly it was to do with, the it generally had it often had a, a, a religious component to it, um, but even though I wasn't particular, we weren't particularly religious. We, I felt like the if they could do it, then there's a way that I could do it. And so I looked into it. To start with, I read a lot of John Holt, and I started really um, thinking about. Education as as learning um, in a in a freer sort of more natural way, because I felt like that was part of the problem that I saw happening at school. Our younger son was quite competitive, and so he strove hard to be uh, 
really good at school, which he which he was. He, it came relatively easy to him, but he also I could his his personality was changing dramatically, and so we uh, we decided to homeschool. Or I gave, we gave him the option if he wanted to homeschool after the first summer, and um, he decided that he wanted to do it. So after reading John Holt, I started to realize that there was a stage that I had to do first and and that is considered to be de-schooling. And so we spent the first, well, uh, we pulled, we, we took our oldest son out of school in, in at Easter time and we basically de-schooled from April till September. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, because he, uh, he, he didn't want to have anything to do with sitting down and doing anything. And of course, I was really new at how I was going to approach it. And I and I just felt like what he needed to do is just take the stress off of learning, just step back from it and not feel like it was all about pressure and and for being forced to do something and kind of putting the joy back into it. And so I gave us that amount of time to to do it which really allowed me to learn a lot more about about what I was aiming for even though even though I you know I had to I really had to work at figuring out what it was that I was aiming for but I knew that I wanted it to be relaxed and enjoyable and I didn't want it to be a fight and tears that was and that and when you when you just approach it from that kind of a goal, it actually the the step between school and homeschool, that de-schooling, it really makes a huge difference, because there's so many things that that are learned in school, that become part of the schooling act, and kids become very schooled very quickly. And one of the things is is sitting back on their hands, so to speak, and letting the teacher tell them what needs to be learned as opposed to them asking questions and exploring for themselves. Um, they, they know exactly how to, to, to act in classrooms, and the goal becomes to find a way to act out of it instead of, in fact, instead of fitting into the teacher's mold or the classrooms, or the school. So the whole schooling attitude has to almost be relaxed or changed before real learning can take place. Right, right. So that was the first steps. Those were the first steps in, in homeschooling. So Xander didn't start homeschooling right away then. Xander's my husband. Uh, he, he, Nolan started in... Easter after Easter and then you waited you were just at home with him and then Xander started in the following school year in the fall is that right yes yes that's right so it was just Nolan and and myself home um during the those few weeks between Easter and and um the new year or the new school year and the reason was because uh Xander wasn't really having the difficulties and I wanted to sort of test it out just with Nolan and myself first to, uh, to give him space and to give myself space. Um, and I knew that it would be a lot, 
you know, trickier with two as opposed to, to one at home. And so it, it was the perfect amount of, of room to do that, the perfect amount of space to do that. And so we mostly just spent a lot of time just reading uh, books out loud. We did a lot of reading and then we'd play games. We'd build Lego because Lego was a very you know popular thing in our house. Mm-hmm. And so building Lego is an amazing way to, to do math. You don't realize you're doing it per se, but you you gain some really important skills, math skills by doing it. So that's mostly what we spent that time with. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So so how long in the end, how long did you end up homeschooling for for both of the boys? We homeschooled for uh, four years in total. Um, and and so, I mean, plus those few weeks that I did with Nolan. Um, and the last year before they, because I had decided af- after that, you know, I kind of, I knew that I wasn't going to homeschool them right through high school. So I wanted to prepare them to go back into school. And so the last year they did um, some of their courses by uh, distant learning, distance learning. And because I wanted them to have the confidence to be able to go into a classroom and sort of know that they had the, the concepts and understanding well enough to do that. And, um, and, I'm, and, and in, so really in that three and a half years or three years that we, that we homeschooled, there was a lot, of, um, a lot of learning, a lot of fun, a lot of open exploration, a lot of... Um, discussions um, and and they I think they built a, um, a really strong love for a lot of things in that time because they were allowed to go deep yeah. that's probably the biggest thing they were allowed to to spend two or three or four days or whatever their interest took them in one area that they could just delve into it um, I I followed curriculum somewhat but very loosely um, and I wasn't too worried about it. The, um, the school district, I, we- I just registered with the local school district at the time, and they provided someone that would come out a couple of times a year, but it was generally, it was really, they just pretty much left me on my own to do what I wanted to, so there, wasn't, there weren't any high um, demands from it. A couple of times they sent out people to do testing with them with the boys to see sort of where they were at and I never did even hear back from them so I assumed it was good (laughs) (laughs) I didn't worry about it (laughs) so I know I know like on that point of being able to explore learning and having the time to focus on their interests I know Xander's told me that you know his love of writing and reading because you know he's still a huge reader and uh a writer he you know he's taken a little bit of a break from excuse me break from writing right now but he says that really it's homeschool that led him to that because he had the time to read and explore books and write and that has that really you know he said he felt going back to school actually kind of snubbed that out and it wasn't until he left school and refound it again that he was like, oh, yeah, this is what I love to do. Like, this is this is my joy and that I had when I was younger homeschooling that really sparked it, that I was able to really focus on that and pursue it. And then later in life did he refine it again. But he said it definitely 
it was that fire was extinguished, he felt, for a while going back to school because of like fitting into that mold, like you explained, acting as you should in school. And that became priority to the love of learning. Yeah, I... I um, I have a kind of a saying that I always go back to, and that is that uh, when it, and I mean I understand that public education and formalized education has its place, so I don't want to make it seem like I like it like I you know totally disagree with it, but I always think that we turn out some amazing people in spite of what we do to them in school. Mm. And, um, it, you know, it, it, I always, I, the reason that I decided to homeschool is the way that Nolan was heading in his schooling. Um, I looked at it and I could see that if the, something didn't change immediately, there would be a very slim chance that he would graduate and if he graduated, he probably wouldn't have the confidence of having had that that many years of formal education behind him. So I thought the least, the worst I could do is that he wouldn't graduate. Right. And so I kind of used that as my as my you know very loose terms of of expectations. And uh, because he was losing confidence so fast. And and it just wasn't him. He was generally a very. They they were both very confident mm-hmm. in their learning and understanding, and and they both pick up things quickly. And so I could just see it kind of eroding away, and it bothered me uh, so much that that's when I that's when I made that decision. And um, I think it's well. I know for myself, my husband, we we both are so thankful that we had the opportunity to do that. And the only regret that I have is that I didn't start them before school started. Really? <laughs> yeah. If I could do it over again, I would do it before they ever get to school. And homeschool with the intention of keeping them there at least until junior high years. Um, grade 8 is a nice transition year if you really feel that you have to put them back into formal education. But I feel like by the time they get to grade 8... They're so confident in their learning and their understanding and that that they can actually take it from there and get what they need to go to university or college or whatever their adult dreams and aspirations are anyway. But as a parent, if you feel like, you know, you need need it for your own peace of mind, I would say grade eight is a nice transition year. And then they're prepared for grade nine and then, you know, and then moving into the high school years. But that is my only regret. I would totally do it from the start. Because then, then you don't have to go through that de-schooling process. Right. And you're not going through that, um, that um, place where you're, where you're working on confidence that has been eroded from the schools, from being in a public setting. If, you know, and whatever the situation, I, I know that there's some amazing, amazing public schools out there as well. Um, but the situation for us at the time was not beneficial to, to the way we wanted edu- to our kids to be educated. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. 
So then um, maybe we can talk a little bit about you as well, too, because I think the interesting thing that I found over the years as well is it's also just as much about the journey for the parent as it is for the kids. And it's interesting because I found personally that I'm still de-schooling after all these years. Things come up and I think, you know, when I really step back and think about it, I'm like, oh, that's, I'm just thinking about it because everyone else says this is a way, but it's not the only way to look at things. And, you know, it's really taking that step back. But for you, you, um, you actually went back to school. You finished, you actually finished your high school. You, you went back, you got your high school uh, diploma then you went on to college and university and you became a teacher. And this is all during and after you were homeschooling the kids, right? I think you went just when the kids, when Nolan and Zana went back to school, then you went back to school. Is that right? So what, why did you decide to, like, I can, I know you and I, <laughs> I know, but for those listening, why, why did you decide to do that and follow that path? I also think it's pretty amazing that you did go back to school after that time and, and really continue to pursue what you what you love and your passion. Yeah, I, I think once the the learning bug had been reawakened in me, um, I I made the decision to go back to school. Now I'm just going to back it up a little bit to give some further background on on who I was or where I came from because I was raised on a homestead in northern Alberta, which. There was a school there with Northland School District, um, but when I when I was a child, when we first moved out there with my parents and siblings, um, it was a one room school for about three grades per per room, and there weren't very many kids. And so, education, the way I knew it, was probably closer to homeschool than it was to a regular school setting. We did, you know, we, we kind of, we did a lot of desk work, which is, is different in some ways, but not really. We got to do a lot of exploring. We got to be outside a lot. We got to have a lot of discussions. We, we, we worked with kids that were multi-age instead of just our own peer group age. Um, and so education for me had a lot of gaps as well as a lot of, places that were, you know, really in-depth. So learning, learn, I had a completely different perspective about learning growing up in that setting, I think. And I realized that I hadn't gone through uh, the specific curriculum step-by-step. Step. It wasn't a step-by-step step thing. I, I learned more organically. And I learned to, if I was interested in something, I would read to find out about it. Uh, which, of course, resources were fairly limited to us. Right. But I, I just learned to have a great love of reading because I could explore the world through reading and I could explore, you know, human characteristics and I could explore all kinds of adventure. And, and reading became my, my educator, my teacher. I mean, my, my mom was very interested in education, but my father was, was relatively illiterate in many ways. Um, and so, you know, he uh, he had a lot of other knowledge that I loved to follow as well. So I would spend a lot of time outside with him and doing building projects or doing welding or 
fixing machines or doing stuff like that. That was kind of my go-to place. And so I think that love of learning, I realized what was the key to all learning. And so once that was re-sparked in me, then I decided I wanted to go back to school as well. Um, also, I had talked to the one, the instructor, or not the instructor, but the supervisor of the homeschooling program, and and he asked me why I wanted to homeschool, and I gave him the reasons, and and then he said, you know, it would be really nice if, you know, if that if that whole attitude could be sort of shared or spread, and I said, well, I will, I promise that when I get my kids to a certain point where I feel confident enough, then I'll do what I can to help education in other ways. And so then I decided to go back to university. And I, uh, I originally studied, uh, I took um, English literature. I wanted to have a degree in English literature because, uh, because of my love of reading. And then, so I studied that and I got a, a combined degree in education and, and literature. And then, so that was a five-year program and I did the first couple of years at Lakeland and then I moved to Lethbridge and did the, the, the last three years at the University of Lethbridge. Came out with a combined degree, taught high school for about five years. I loved English, but I didn't like the fact that I was teaching the subject and not the kids you know the kids is it's important you can't basically just teach one without the other but I I only saw them for like these short periods or relatively short periods in a day and I realized that yes I was um, contributing to their understanding of literature but I wasn't necessarily contributing to who they were or would grow up to as an as an adult or where they would go in the future and so then when I um I decided to to quit that position uh, when our grandson Ronan was born <laughs> in Korea, and so we wanted to be able to go over and see him. And then when I came back to school to teaching, I took a grade four position, which opened up an entirely new sort of area for me because then I was teaching multiple subjects. I had the same kids pretty well you know, all day long because we were in a small, a relatively small school. And so the kids didn't move around from teacher to teacher. And in elementary, generally, that's what happens. And so I taught, uh, so I taught grade four. And then it was teaching math in grade four that inspired me to take the next step, which was to then take my master's in uh, mathematics curriculum and instruction. And, and so, because I could see in a grade four classroom, and of course I knew this from myself, that I, I loved math until I got up to elementary, till I actually got up to junior high school, when I moved schools, when I moved from the uh, community school in Clearedale to a fair, uh, the school in Fairview that I went to. And... I started hating math at that point because it wasn't the, it didn't have the same approach in the same field. I could do, you know, I was never really, really good at, at multiplication tables. I knew that when I was put under pressure doing math, I just panicked or I would just shut down. Part, something in my brain would just shut down and I would not be able to do the computation. 
where, but if I had time to do it, then I would solve the problem in multiple ways because I knew that I could use lots of different strategies. Um, but I was so afraid about being slow and having a wrong answer mm. that I would just kind of shut down. And then I started to hate math. So when I started teaching grade four and I realized that I had a classroom full of students at varying degrees, varying levels in mathematics, and some of them were really quick at computation and some of them hated it and refused to even look at it. And then there was the middle of the road ones that could work at it. And, you know, and I'm talking like sitting down pencil and paper. So I wanted to find a way that I could teach an entire class um, and have them actually like math, have fun with math and enjoy math. Um, And so then um, a, 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 a master's program came up where I could take it in Grand Prairie. Uh, it was from through Simon Fraser University. And I applied for that. And of course, it happened at a very busy time, but <laughs> it all came out and came through. And, and that's what gave me the uh, an, an entirely different approach to mathematics. <laughs> it's funny because I feel like we're also kind of condensing Moni's story because it's a great personal story, and I also want, I know there's so much I want to talk about, so um, I also want to give a little bit of background to, you know, when Monty talks about her growing up on a homestead and in a one-room school, where we live, and not, where, not even where we live now, but where she lived, it's still fairly remote. It's not a big population, and when she talks about homesteading, it's not the homesteading of you know, being outside of the city 45 minutes and it's, you know, it was really, they cleared the land, they built from the ground up, everything, everything that you could think of. And the community there is still a fairly remote, quiet community. And so I can see how even the school there now, although the population is much larger than it was, still a fairly small remote, you know, school as well um, with, you know, with, with grades kindergarten to 12, but it's still fairly small too. Um, so it, it's a great perspective as well. Um, so I think you are, I also asked you on because you're a great person to talk about math. And this month we have been focusing on math in the podcast and on social media. And it's always interesting because I feel like when the the topic of math comes up, it inspires two things in people or sparks two things, absolute fear and dread and anxiety. Like people are just like, I don't want to talk about math. I don't know. <laughs> I know I feel, I feel like I can't do math. I, you know, if I'm homeschooling, I don't know what to do because I can't do math. So I don't know how I'm going to teach my kids or empower my kids in it. Or there's people who are just like, yeah, math, no problem. I was great at math. I love math and I think it will be fine. Or, you know, or maybe they just say, I love math. Like it's, I, th- I find it so much fun. Um, it's, it, but it gets very strong extremes. <laughs> and when you're talking about teaching grade four, I remember I had a, an earlier guest, Leah, and I can actually include the link to her show, to her interview in the show notes too. And she talked about, because she's an unschooling mom now, um, your natural learner is her company that she has now. She's got 
two boys and a new baby, but she was a, a teacher. She started out teaching kindergarten and then she moved to, I think, grade five. And she said that was a big shift for her because she went from having classrooms of kids that were so just engaged and excited and curious and asking questions and enthralled with learning to the almost complete opposite by the time they got to that grade where they were fearful. They didn't want to, it was all about getting things right and not making mistakes and, or they, you know, either it shut them down or they were really apprehensive about doing work. And all of these things that she couldn't believe in that short few years had changed in the kids so quickly. And it was really discouraging for her, like really, really discouraging for her. So it's interesting that you talk about that as well. So when we're talking about math, why do you think for so many people, and I know you talked about it for yourself as well, where does that anxiety come from? I know people usually, and I, I hope it's changing more, but I think of like, I used to think of it, you're a math person or you're not a math person. You got it or you don't have it. But the great thing is we're learning now from brain science and the technology that we have that that's actually not valid. Those ideas are actually quite outdated when it comes to the science that we have now. Can you talk a little bit? Because I know you also really discovered and explored this in your like with your master's program and with your students as well. Can you talk a little bit about this as well? That's a huge thing in mathematics, and I can honestly say that I've that I've explored it, and I have uh, experienced both both sides of it. I went, um, as I said, I enjoyed math as a younger person, but when I got to junior high, when I got into a new setting and a new style of teaching and a new, and it, it was even called new math really? that we were studying. <laughs> okay. And so it all of a sudden, it, it suddenly became a very scary thing. And I started to develop a huge anxiety around it. And so such to the point that there was, there was very little about it that I could grasp. Um, and I just, I felt like I was always in confusion. And it generally was around... Um, algebra where there were some unknowns, right. you know, and, and and I never could figure out why it had to be A, B, or C, <laughs> right. and what the heck A had to do with any number. Right. And it just, and so it started there, and then I think it just snowballed. And I couldn't, yeah. I can't pinpoint any particular thing. Um, but I do know that I recall, I honestly recall hearing my parents say, oh, it's okay, you're not, you know, I mean, I'm not good at math. I'm not good at math, and so that's probably, you know, so you're not good at math, it's okay. And so not being good at math became this, either you have it or you don't. Much like the belief that my father always always said that, you know, either you, you could play an instrument or you couldn't. Not that we even ever tried, <laughs> because we never had instruments. <laughs> But that was always the understanding. It was either it was either an innate understanding or not, and and so math kind of became mixed up with that. And so whenever uh, people would say, "Oh, I see math all around me," I would I would literally like look around me and say, <laughs> "How on earth are they seeing math?" It became so um, obscure to me. Yeah. And it actually wasn't until I was partway through my master's, early on in the master's program, and I had a distance to drive between 
Um, so we drove to the local to Grand Prairie to the nearest city to do our weekend our weekend studies and and I I remember feeling like at one point that my brain literally felt heavier on one side than the other. Now I know that sounds really odd, but when I chose to study literature is because I had a natural tendency to understand the humanities, the, that side of things. And so I really, really worked on building that. And I loved literature and I loved writing and I loved understanding, you know, how writers did their work. And, and to me, my goal was to become a, a you know, like a, a language teacher, a teacher of language arts. And, and it was great, but I, I literally felt like one side of my head was heavier. <laughs> I know that sounds strange. But partway through my master's, I was driving to Grand Prairie, and oh, I was looking out because, of course, I was I was very excited about seeing math in a new way, sort of through a new lens, and and getting a grasp and a feeling for it. That I actually looked out one day, and it was just like, it was it just like hit me. I'm like, Oh my God, I see math everywhere. <laughs> and I did. It was like every place I looked, I could see math. I could understand what, what was meant by that term. And since then... Wait, just, sorry, sorry. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt the flow, but I want you to explain how. What was the change? Like, how did you see math every year, everywhere? What was the shift for you? Yeah. Okay. Thanks for slowing me down. Because <laughs> I, I, I just get excited about it when I think about it. But what happens is... I start to look at things in terms of shapes and I look at things in terms of measurement and I look at things in terms of angles and um, so distance and measuring and the proportions of things um, and I can and I can uh, and I get excited to know that I could understand that particular building if I if I put my mind to it I could just go in and understand it and I knew that I could replicate it if I wanted to or I could I could take the same shape and I could and I could bring it into a larger form by doing certain you know calculations and and so just understanding the practicality of math and understanding the the applicability of it like how I can apply it to the world around me and and I think that that's where we fall down as educators when we when we go so quickly to numbers and I mean numbers as in the symbol that's written down on the page mm -hmm. and try to figure out you know what's seven plus three or what's one plus one and and use the number as the meaningful thing as opposed to the to the objects or the items or the the usefulness of what it is we we put to, to paper it's those it's those things that i think we shut the world of math out by going too quickly to to those numbers and yes they're important but the funny thing about them is is that they come to their own necessity as we understand the meaning of mathematics. Why do we even care? Why does it even matter to us why we should figure out what seven times seven is or three times ten? It, you know, what's the importance of that? 
Well, of course, the importance of that is if you want to make some some calculations to figure out if you've got a, a party of 30 people coming and you know how to cook or you know how to serve 10 people, well, how are you going to accommodate having enough material, enough food to you know accommodate that size of a group? That's a practical thing. And so when we start to understand that the value of what multiplication is, then we can put that back to numbers and we can use it, we can use what we know to expand upon that. And so that's where the whole, the whole question comes into it of, of being able to use numbers and why we use numbers. And we use numbers because it, they represent something and not just the basic of, you know, six red blocks and five blue blocks and three orange blocks. How many blocks do we have all together? Um, yes, that's important, but why? What are we going to do with those blocks? What's the point in having all these different colors? And if we're going to use them, then how are we going to use them? And so I think that that aha moment that I had, which is literally the biggest aha moment I've ever had in my life, because it suddenly burst into that other side of my brain. And I suddenly could see the, the world through a mathematical lens. I think that that's the hardest thing that homeschoolers, when they first start to homeschool, is that difference, making that difference between computation and mathematics. Why do we need to do the computation? And the computation is something that should follow the why, not precede it because that preceding of it causes kids to their minds to go numb then they start to think that if they can't get the answer to it if they can't get it fast then they're failures in mathematics and and if they don't see the the real purpose and I mean when if you get that if you grasp that if you understand that early in your in life then the rest of it will fit into place but if you force it too soon, I think it causes a lot of anxiety. Yeah. So then how, because I think of, you know, I've, I've heard of math referred to things like, you know, math is a language, it's a way to communicate. So whether it's numbers or other ways of forms of expression, how we see it repeated in nature or art or different things like that, it's, it takes it beyond those concepts or just those digits, I guess, those numbers. Because we do so many times think that math is about well, memorize your multiplication tables, make sure you know how to add, you know, one plus one equals two, two plus two equals four, four plus four equals eight, you know, that pattern that I think we learn to kind of regurgitate pretty quickly. Um, and then, you know, your division, you need to know those things. And, but then it's, you know, the concern of then the equations, knowing the formulas and the equations as well. So how do we go from Instead of introducing the concept and equations first, how do we build the foundations or the understanding so that when those concepts come in, it's just a way to incorporate that into our language instead of trying to memorize the concepts and then after somehow trying to understand them? Because I find that if we don't get that understanding, then our gaps, those gaps happen. And as we're pushed quickly through, say, it's a curriculum or or whatever that math program might be, then it gets harder and harder. Those gaps actually widen. It gets harder to fill in. And, and then therefore, in, 
to move forward. And then, I mean, never mind the joy and all that other stuff that comes with it then. So how do we introduce that understanding first? Like, what are some ways, I guess? What are some examples? Yeah, and it's, it's, it is a huge topic. And so trying to narrow it down into, into a little pathway is nearly impossible. But um, I think the key... The, the biggest the biggest thing is is use as many uh, manipulatives and counting things that you can when you're dealing with particular problems. Now obviously that's not going to f- work for every possible thing, but you it's amazing all the different ways that you can bring manipulatives into the learning. And having said that, manipulatives will represent the numbers, right? Because then you've got something that, okay, so these, uh, you know, um, start with the manipulatives and move to numbers. Don't start with the numbers and then build manipulatives into it when you're working early. So when you've got, you know, if you've got preschoolers, all right, and you want to bring the concept of adding to preschoolers, well, you just, you Put some blocks down in front of them. You can use blocks or buttons or counting bears or, or uh, pasta or whatever. Anything, <laughs> right? Anything that you can that you can use to separate into individual things, and that you can start by your counting. And so, and so we you, you move you you actually manipulate the item. You move it from place to place, and you say, "This is one." You see, there's one there, and then there's two, and then there's three. And so on. And and then you can play all kinds of games with that. Like you can, you know, I remember learning that concept um, a lot with jacks because you had to move up in jacks from one to however many jacks there were and you had to do it in singles and then you had to do it in doubles and then triples and so on. Um, and so it helped, it helped me to understand that particular part. Of course, that came back to me afterwards. I had, you know, I never used that when I was thinking about that I didn't understand math because, the, but as long as I wasn't under pressure, I could always find ways to solve my problems. Right. Whereas as soon as I was put into a timed event or something, then it threw it, threw it off. And so um, I know that Joe Bowler, for instance, and, and many other um, mathematics experts realize that Timed mathematics is one of the hardest things on um, children and creating math anxiety because it's really, when you're timing something, it's really about your ability to, that hand-eye coordination or that, um, you know, how quick you can think, which has nothing to do with intelligence. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the biggest mistakes when it comes to mathematics is that we think that a good mathematician should be fast. And Joe Bowler speaks on that a lot. And so does um, uh, the mindset, uh, the woman that Carol Dweck, Carol Dweck um, studied a lot about, you know, mindsets. And, and, and it's just, um, we, you know, we were, that's where the whole difference in understanding between be, being a, a, a good mathematician and being and memorizing math facts. There's a split there because it's one kind of is detrimental to the other in a lot of ways if it's done too quickly. Now, if I wanted to do a lot of computation and I wanted to become really, really good at multiplication in order so that I could do my computation fast so it didn't bog me down, if I didn't have a calculator on hand, because of course we have computers to do all that now. But um, 
then I then there's a, a need, a purpose for me to get really fast at multiplication tables, not the other way around. So to go back to your question about how can we move um, into that uh, build the foundation first, or building the yeah. foundation. Yeah, is use as many manipulatives as you can until the concept becomes too large for the manipulatives. So, in other words, once you've got a good grasp of how to do addition, then you're obviously not going to have them counting a hundred pennies or a hundred blocks every time they want to add bigger numbers. So then you find ways to group them, and then grouping becomes the the important thing. And um, and finding ways to work with tens, and you know, and and there are you know, like for instance, if you you know, egg cartons work really good. So if you want to put buttons into egg cartons, and you could count by two. So you start by putting two into each cup, and you know, cut it off at ten. So you're working in tens, um, and and those kind of things early on become um, a way for the student to, for the child to apply the concept to a meaningful purpose to a meaningful thing and then they can carry that with them that notion of that with them when they're working in in more abstract ideas but if you don't start with that if you start strip strictly with numbers and move into abstract from there then the abstract gets completely lost right okay yeah okay yeah, no, that's very understandable. So then uh, one of the questions was as well is, do you think that kids should be doing math every day? Should we be doing math every day with our kids? And I guess you can answer that in two different ways because that can be asked in two different ways. Should we be doing math where, and I'm just going to refer to it as school-based math or old school math, I guess. I'm trying to think of a good way to term it as opposed to, um, you know, the the actual understanding, the memorization, and the drills, kind of uh, opposed to hands-on and the manipulatives and understanding the base knowledge. Um, should we? Be, what should we be doing every day? None, both, or neither? Or what do you think on that? Every day, it depends on your situation. Um, because if you are set up, if you're if you're set up with your, you know, your homeschooling regime or, or um, routine where you want to include the formal math into every day, that's entirely up to you. But um, as I said earlier, I think that the key, the key in math education is to, to first of all, help yourself or train yourself to see mathematics as a lens. Look at the world through that lens. Um, and have math as your perspective. And so as soon as, when you start to think like that, when you start to think and see things through your own lens in that way, then you'll find, then there'll be lots of opportunities to come up with math. And I know that um, I've been, you know, reading some of your postings and and, uh, listening to your podcast, Robin, and talking about that thing. And there's many different ways to do it. I mean, we can cook, we can um, build, we can... uh, you know, measure. There's all kinds of ways, and I think those are the the key ways to think of, about applying math. Um, measurement is a fantastic way to do to do that and apply the numbers and apply the necessity of multiplication and addition and division and all those kinds of things because you can measure to build or you can measure to bake or you can measure to 
to um, like time. I mean, everything measurement becomes a, a fantastic way into it. Um, and so I think the key thing is to, to start yourself looking through the mathematics lens, look at the world around you in your own world in that lens. Um, one exercise that I used to have my students do a lot and they loved it, they loved it, was they had to design their own house. And this is a really, you can do it, it can be as, as, as um, you know, elementary as you want it to be or as wherever your kids are, you can start it. And I, and I know that um, our grandkids used to do this a lot with Legos because they'd have these bases and then they had to build and design their house on the base, whatever the shape of the base was. And they could choose to make their rooms a certain size, whatever size they had, whatever in it. And, and, and when you're using Legos, it's a really, really quick and easy way to move from the, from the form, from the manipulative, so to speak, into the number. Because each Lego is conveniently sized. Right. You have one by one, or you have two by two, or you have two by one, or you have three by, you know, two, two, by, four, two by four. I mean, there's so many different sizes. And so you then you start to see math even in an algebraic way. Because you build your 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 four walls and it's easy to figure out the perimeter of that house when you look at each one by one cube as a one by one foot or it might be you know it might be six inches by a foot if you go one by two or and you don't even have I'm, and here I am talking in <laughs> in imperial measure <laughs> Okay, we have lots of Americans. Okay. Um, but, you know, that, but it's a really, really quick way to figure out, oh, yeah, these are already in place for me. They, uh, they can help me to, to visualize what I'm going to build. I can then turn that into an even larger scale. And so then you're talking about scale measurements as well and, and how you can change the dimensions or change the actual size of a building by increasing the scale of that. And, and so... Those are the ways that, that we can um, put it into application and we can build on it. And so as, as a homeschooler then, as a person that's providing your child with the way to get to a place, build Legos and, and then turn it into and then help them to see the numbers involved. And, and the nice thing about Legos is you can do so many things because you can then look at cubed, you know, what something is like when it's cubed, right. what it's like when, you know, uh, the difference between um, two-dimensional and three-dimensional. Um, and then that goes into so many different areas. Right. And really, the sky is the limit if you just start to see the world around you in those terms not numbers because when we force ourselves into numbers we we actually force ourselves away from mathematics in an odd way right yeah the only time we use numbers is when we want when we need to expand upon our concepts expand upon our ideas because if i can build a a structure out of lego and it's at this scale well then I use numbers to figure out how to get it up to the next scale or the next scale and build. And then, and then there's no limit to what you can do and why you need those numbers. 
but the meaning of it has to occur in the original conceptual building. Like you're building the concept when you're using the manipulatives. Right, right. It's funny because um, you even mentioning, I remember when the kids would all get together and they would play Lego for hour and that's what they each one had their own base and then they would each build their rooms and houses and they would add on and come over to each other's houses and look what I, you know, it was, and they did it for so long. And it's funny how like, it's great how you broke that down because you made it so clear when someone says, well, how can I see, you know, how will they be learning math when they're playing? How will I get, you know, should it just be blocks that I'm counting and those are, those are the manipulatives? But it was so clear with the Lego how concepts from simplest, like simple early concepts to more abstract, like you talked about how algebra comes into it and even the deeper measurements and scale, all of those concepts that then become higher level concepts are all right there in, in what they're building and playing with. It's, yeah, yeah, it is right. Yeah. It's very, very evident. And, and it just builds, you know, there's so many concepts you can build from that, like depth and height and width. Mm -hmm. You can, you can, uh, build volume. You can consider volume e even beyond that. And I mean, you don't have to be a particular age to understand those things. If you've got the concept of it, if you if you've got that visual in your mind's eye of what it what it means in that smaller you know in that smaller concept uh, idea or not that smaller concept but the smaller vision, then you can expand that to any to any problem. Mm -hmm. And and so. Um, Legos and, and playing is a, is one example, and there's so many others. You know, like card games, for instance. Card games bring in so many opportunities to use numbers. Right. Um, card tricks, and mm -hmm. there's like some phenomenal card tricks out there that it really takes a mathematical. You it, the the more you can break it down mathematically, and it becomes like this huge challenge to figure out what is it behind this this card trick that works you know and it's not like trickery it's actually mathematics right and that's yeah. the beauty of it because you can take it back down to that and then of course there's um spatial awareness is a huge one as well and and one thing that I was that I was going to talk about early was the concept of of subitizing because subitizing is a term that we you know we just think oh that just has what meaning does it really? And I'm not even sure if people have even heard of the I was term. Say, what is so subitizing is a really simple concept that helps build a mathematical brain very early on, and that is to subitize. When you can subitize, you actually you can look at a number of items and you know automatically that that's three, okay. or you know that it's six. Dice are a very good and quick way to do that because we can roll the dice and we don't. You know, after we've played a, a bit, a few dice games, we can kind of know that oh yeah, that's five, largely because of the way it's laid on the on the cube, um, but also because our mind starts to recognize five items, and the quicker, the sooner you learn how to subitize, then you can apply it to like counting up, for instance, and so you don't have to if you've got, you know, when when your child is just learning about adding, for instance, if they know that they've got six things in this thing, they don't have to count from one again. And and this, right. so the sooner they learn to subitize, then their their addition comes faster. So they can they know, oh, I've got six, and then I can just go seven, eight, nine, ten, and I've got 
I've got 10 things because I've got a six and a four. And then that six and a four translates back into those numbers and they've got a visual that they can apply it to. So then, then, then adding comes quicker. And the same thing with multiplication. So if you, if you think about, you know, if you're looking at, say, two times four and you're grouping them, Mm-hmm. And then you can look at that. Oh, yeah, I've got two groups of four. So I've got two groups of four. I know what four looks like. So then I can just add four and four. Or then as the numbers get more advanced, then. Now, as I said earlier, you don't, you don't want to drive the manipulatives beyond their use. Right. So let, the kid, let your kids use manipulatives as early as possible you know, help them to build number around those, but don't overdo the manipulative. Right. Because what happens is then they get bogged down in the, in the, in the formation and in the, you know, in the actual manipulating those items, which then slows down their, their thinking and conceptual process. Right. So there's a, there's a, an end to it. Like you, you can actually have too much, of a good thing right. <laughs> when it comes to manipulation. Okay, thank you for saying that because I no because he's some okay. I'm gonna buy all. Let's get these manipulatives going. We're gonna do this every single day, and you know, sure if they're you're, they're enjoying it, great. But yeah, we can you can have too much of a good thing. So yeah. I, I understand that. Thank you for saying that. Um, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit as well because I think this also adds to what you were just saying. Um, you had already mentioned the whole timing, like being fast. We used to equate math with, you know, being able to compute quickly or do it quickly. Um, but really, now our technology has brought us to the point where we have calculators, we have computers. A lot of those computation skills are done through technology already. Um, but then going into the area of depth and creative thinking, which is extremely important in math. Um, I see it as you're explaining it, really that depth and creative thinking happens when they're, you know, talking about Lego and building and, or, you know, many other concepts. But could you maybe talk about the importance of, of depth and creative thinking in math and, and how we as a parent, again, getting into that mindset of understanding and seeing math around us, how can we see that playing out in our daily lives at homes when our kids are playing or engaged in something or creating or building? Uh, how can we see that as a parent, notice that in our kids? Yeah, that that's kind of a, that also is a, is a difficult thing, but I, I always think of the difference because I've, I've had the experience of being a homeschooling mom and then moving into a classroom setting and trying to work these things with a large group as opposed to just two or three kids or however many, how many, you know, kids you have in your homeschooling setting. Um, and, and it be, definitely becomes more difficult in a classroom setting in a lot of ways right. because you don't have the freedom to watch and to observe. And I think that's the biggest thing you can do as an educator is to observe. Mm-hmm. Observe what your kids are doing a lot. And you know, for instance, when your when your child um, has their concepts up to 10. Mm-hmm. You know that. You can you get that by observing. They don't have to do any test. It's not like you have to put them through any rigor. You know, um, and and 
How can we as a parent notice the depth and creativity that our children are expressing at home when they're playing or in math? How can we as a parent as well notice that in math? I think our kids intuitively do it before we train it out of them, (laughs) I think in some ways. But so you were saying it's easier to do that at home because we have the time and space to stop and observe and let them do that as opposed to being in the classroom when you can't observe and you are limited on the time and the space. So the big, the other thing though is that, so, so on top of observing, it's okay to find ways to challenge them. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't, it's not about, because we are here as the facilitators, we're here to guide their learning. And so once we've observed them and we figure, okay, they've got that concept down or they understand, they, they get that and they're ready to move into something else. Then you, then you start to, then you can uh, give them a challenge and not like, okay, guys, I'm challenging you today. This is what you're going to do. It's not that, but you find ways to build that into your daily repertoire, into your, you know, into your thinking. And so, yeah, you, you have to like, uh, um, think a lot as, as you see what's happening and then you move into the next. And so, um, a really, really good way to do that is to, provide them with open-ended questions and you give them these open-ended questions um, you can do it as part of your daily life or you can find you you know create your own or you, I mean and there, there's a really there are some really really good resources for open-ended questions um, online and I'll provide Robin I'll provide you with a with a, a link to some grade level problems that a friend of mine put together uh she she studied her master's with me as well and she has them on on available pdf and so i can provide some of those and it isn't even so much the actual problem but if you as a as a home educator if you look at these problems and look at how they're put together you can it's not long and you can find ways to create your own and so then if you're baking, for instance, and you you know you and you want to create a, a problem to solve in in baking, like portions, for instance, or serving so many people, then you would say, you know, okay, we've got guests coming over, and I need to know how much, uh, how what quantity I need to to solve, you know, to solve this, and then let them go to it. You don't you don't. The question doesn't have to be specific. In fact, the less specific it is, the better. Um, you don't you don't want to like give them the answer. There's no there's the answer is is part of like coming up with the answer is is how you can observe to see how they're doing in in that particular concept. Um, and so, by working with open ended questions, you start to see the opportunities around you um, and how to turn that into a math into a math question without it even becoming a math problem necessarily mm-hmm. and and there's so there's so many ways that you can do that and I don't I feel like I'm not making myself very clear but but um, we it, it really just comes back down to that looking at at the world around you through that math lens and seeing the opportunities uh, as they arise in, in being able to put that to use. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, 
I think you're being clear. And I, I think as well, I uh, encourage anyone while you're listening to ask if you have questions, if you want some clarification, to definitely um, send those in. You can do that through social media or via email. You can go to my website as well and in the contact page. Absolutely share any questions if you want further explanation and we can follow up with that as well. But I think I think it is clear. It's I also hear you saying it's not something that, you know, you know, I think we think that maybe we can study for something in an evening and by the next morning we'll have this clear understanding. It's something that's going to take time and practice and observation and just taking the space to stop and notice and um, not trying to fill it in, but just letting it unfold as it should. And I think so many times our kids are better guides for us, like following them on that than us trying to force something on them because they follow that natural rhythm and flow a lot better than we do as adults, <laughs> I find. Yeah, especially when you take away the... When you take away the the confines of a classroom, so to speak, because we confine ourselves so much inside of the four classroom walls. And that was the hardest thing about being moving away from homeschooling into into a classroom education and classroom setting, rather, is that I was confined and, and I felt the confines of it all the time. And I felt the kids feel the confines of it. There's no room to explore there's no room to kind of, you know, and, and I was a very, um, you know, very open teacher in so many ways. I used as much of the homeschooling knowledge that I could bring with me and put into application. Um, and especially I was very happy to be able to to do my master's while I was still in the classroom. I was teaching at the time that I was studying, and so I could uh, put that to application. And one of the one thing that you might want to try as a home educator that I always think it would be a lot of fun to do, um, of course, my kids are growing up, and Robin does a very, very good job of, <laughs> of educating her own, stu- her own kids, but, um, it, and that is a, this thing that we call um, vertical surfaces, and they use they work so well in a classroom setting, but I I'm sure that they would work even better in a homeschool setting. And the thing is, is that when we're used to doing math in the old-fashioned way or an old uh, you know in, 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 in like in a computational manner, we give a kid a pencil and a paper, mm-hmm. and we sit them down, and they have this you know white sheet of paper in front of them, and it might be you know. Any color, it doesn't matter. It might be any size, it doesn't particularly matter. But we make it permanent. And so it's, right. it makes such a huge difference to go from that permanent to the impermanent and be able to do math on an impermanent surface. And so if you've got a whiteboard, put it up on the wall or on a table. It doesn't have to be vertical. It just It's really nice to be able to be on your feet while you're doing this. Give them a whiteboard surface. And, and then tell them, uh, you know, and then come out and then, and then give them a problem and you become the writer. You, you can operate the pen and they tell you what to write. So of course you're not going to, um, you're not going to start, you know, if you're working with preschoolers, you're not going to start with difficult things, but you're going to, you know, uh, for instance, a really, a really fun one to start with is, 
Um, if you've got pets and there's six people in your house and the, the object is to figure out how many legs there are in your house. Right. That's right? a good one, yeah. And so <laughs> then, okay, so how many legs do we have? Well, you know, mommy and daddy each have two legs and, and then they draw the, the, the parents you know, and if you, the, the, the beauty thing about you doing the writing at that point, and of course you take turns at this, but if you're doing the writing, they're doing the talking. Mm-hmm. And because math talk is a really, really f- wonderful way to get better understanding of math. And so you're not just, it isn't, doesn't just become about you and this paper and pencil. It's not just your head zeroing in on that paper. Then it's all of a sudden, oh, you can see all around you, you can move, you can talk, you can bring those numbers by drawing pictures. And then, you know, so you draw the picture of everybody. If if that's what, you know, the child says, well, draw a picture, you know, of everybody. And you can kind of guide them on their way. You could say, don't, I would, you know, like, don't give them the answers or don't give them the actual solutions or anything, but say, well, what about if we started by drawing? what would I draw? And then they would, oh, let's draw a picture of daddy and mommy. And you could hand the pen over to them if they wanted to, but have them talk about it as they're doing it. And then it becomes this, this um, way to apply the, the, the math into the, you know, into that surface. And, you know, you might have three kids and each kid has their own su- suggestion, try to accommodate each one as best as possible and then and then go from there and you'll find and this is part of the thing about about learning math in this way is that it becomes very uh very fluid and mm-hmm. and and you see that there's lots that there's more than one way to solve things you know somebody might start by pictures somebody you know who's a little older might start by writing the numbers down and that's perfectly okay if they choose to put the numbers it depends on who's doing the talking that particular day um, and, and, and if there's more than one, then they have to agree on what they're going to put on the board. But the important thing is, is that the person holding the pen doesn't do the talking or the thinking. They just do the writing. I mean, obviously, they're going to have their own thoughts and their own, you know, if it's one of the, one of the kids. But it, it becomes um, a lot more alive yeah. than math becomes alive. And then you've got these wonderful pictures. And I, I used to love doing this with my students in class because I'd have, you know, five or six groups and they'd be up there and the talk, the chatter would just be amazing. They had the opportunity to look and look across the room and see what other groups were doing. And maybe looking at somebody else's was just enough to spring them if they were having difficulties. Oh yeah, we could try it that way. And then they, and then they could think, shift their thinking but it allows for so much, so many more um, to broaden, multi-dimensional, multi-dimensional. Yeah. and then it frees it frees up that whole notion of doing math as opposed to sitting there just you and that paper mm-hmm. with nobody to help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so that yeah. conversation makes a wonderful, wonderful different difference. It's funny. I was actually just reading today about making it moving away from the one dimension, which is the pencil and paper with your head down, (laughs) looking at it, to the multidimensional aspects of learning, in particular, specifically when it comes to math, but really all learning, because that's how all life is. It's so multidimensional. And the importance of introducing that 
to our kids or for even for ourselves as adults, because I think you, that's what I hear you also experienced when it became alive for you. Yeah. And I think that's how I, you know, experienced it as well, because it was you who encouraged me to take the the Jobola course with you that one summer. And that was the first time I started, you know, thinking about it in that way and, you know, thinking about my past math experience, how it shaped my views of math in the present, and then seeing how many other ways it could unfold. And so it can happen at any time. We can introduce it for our kids even the better, but as an adult, we can experience it too. But I get the multidimensional aspects of, and the collaboration as well too. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that the, one of the really important things that it does is it encourages risk taking. Mm -hmm. Because as a mathematician, you have to be willing to take risks. And I think that's the problem with focusing so much on computation is that we think that it's, there's no risk to it. It's either you memorize it or you don't get it right or you get it wrong. wrong. And every time when you're working on a math, um, um, you know, trying to solve something through mathematical means, you have to be able to take risks to being wrong because every single time you're wrong, you're learning. And, I th- and that's a concept that gets lost mm-hmm. in that doing the, the numbers on the page and yeah. doing them ad nauseum. Yeah. That was always the part that I just could not get over as a student or as a teacher was having them day after day after day working on basically the same computations in different arrangements and feeling like they weren't successful because once they got this one answered, then 20 questions down the page, they had the same darn thing and they had to do it all over again. Well, did I do it right the first time? I don't know. They just start questioning themselves in that ad nauseum of, of that whole process. You don't have to add three plus three very darn often before you get that it's six. The more times I ask you to do it, the more likely you're going to doubt yourself right <laughs> right it's true it's yeah. like if, if you do it a certain amount of time you're like wait a minute if I'm still yeah. doing it am I actually doing it correctly because you think it's about being right or wrong yeah or right. that speed component and the speed right. component is really no relevance in the understanding of math so it, it it becomes then you start doing numbers for the for the test or doing numbers for the to, to pass or mm-hmm. doing numbers it's it 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 steps out of the realm of being math and it moves into the working with the just doing numbers. Right. And, and then it loses that, that meaning. Right. So, um, so yes, taking risks is a really big thing. And then the other thing that you want to understand and you want your students to learn and your kids to know is that to be a good mathematician, you have to be persistent. Mm. Persistence is what makes the best the best mathematicians. The the more you can stick with a problem, and even if you don't answer that problem or find any solution to it that you're happy about in the first day, take a look at it the second day. And if it doesn't come to you the second day, take a look at it the next day. Or let it sit for a day and come back to it. But persistence is what every mathematician will tell you that they do in solving big worldly problems. Mm. And there are some mathematicians that work on the same problem 
for their entire life. Right. Now that's persistence. That is. But if we don't teach that to our kids, if we don't get them to understand that, okay, we don't have to have that that problem solved by the end of the day. We can come back to it. And and there are so many wonderful problems out there that you can actually get into them. And and you know, your your kids could be working on this particular problem for months. It doesn't mean to say you have to do it steady. Let it rest. Come back to it. Let it rest. Come back to it. But find different ways into it. And I mean, I'm obviously I'm talking about older kids, but teach persistence from the very beginning. So that they so and so if your student looks up at you and says, what what's the answer? Say, you know what? I I actually I'm not sure, and it's really okay for us to not know the answers mm-hmm. if we're working on a problem. If they're working on a problem, like that's where the open ended problems come in. Then you're not going to find an answer sheet with all the open ended problems because that's the whole point. The whole point is to be able to take a risk, find a way into it. Um, and, and, you know, and find a way to, to move on it so that, you, so that you're not just getting distur- discouraged and throwing it away. Um, if, if they need a little bit of a nudge, then give them, a, you know, well, what about, have you tried this? Or what about that? Or, you know, the, you can give them these little suggestions to nudge them along the way, but don't give them the answers because it's not about the answers. It's about, it's the process that we're after, not the product. And I think that's one of the hardest things about seeing mathematics through that lens, through a mathematics lens, is that we're not looking for the product we're, or, 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 or the, you know, the answer to the sums or the answer to the division so much. That's computation. Mm-hmm. That, and that computation comes... Um, you know, as they get more and more familiar with numbers. But when you're working with open-ended problems, it's not about the product. And and I know that lots of critics would just chew that apart because they, you know, because, well, then how are we going to teach our kids the right answer? But the thing is, is if I've got a problem and I'm really, really involved in finding out the answer to that problem, I'm going to come to the product. I'm going to get it. But the process is what allows me to get there. And so it, it isn't a memorization thing. It's not, a, it's not a, a speed thing. It's about how I can find my way into this problem, what I can do to find solutions, and then finally coming around to that, right. to that thinking. Because then if we come up with another problem or are looking to solve something else again, we've practiced coming into the process instead of just trying to find the product so then we can build reapply but build on it as well and then as we move forward even if those open-ended questions are problems then they only can just for us and for our learning and for our our brain our neuroplasticity as well then it then it continues and grows and those new new those new pathways are formed and cemented and 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 filed away as they need to be so then we can bring them back up and then reuse them and then reevaluate them and then use them in a different way and create new pathways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all of that culminates in confidence. Right. So as we as we're doing all of that all of those things that it takes in the process and we find a solution 
a solution that works, and we've done those steps in our own thinking or, you know, collaboratively, if you're working on a problem collaboratively, then you realize, hey, I can do that. I can find my way to that. And so uh, it's the same thing, and I, I tried to get this a, a, across in my classrooms, is that it's the same thing, that if you're working on multiplication, and if, you, if it comes straight out of your memory because you've rehearsed it so many times, or if you know the strategies how to get there. So if I'm working with bigger numbers and I need to break that down and work at it in parts mm -hmm. and then add it up to come up with the product... It's exactly the same product, but I've worked at it through my own way, the way that I understand it, the, the way that it gets me there. I know how to do it. That's perfectly acceptable, perfectly, you know, it, 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 it's actually probably better in the long run than forcing a kid to memorize because I don't know about you, but when I was forced to memorize math or my multiplication tables, my mind went blank. Mm -hmm. And I would know them one day, and then the next day I would be like, oh, the, the numbers would not stay in my head. But if I could visualize something, if I could work through it on my own, it stayed with me, and then I could build from there. And so you build the you build on the, the parts that are that are you know, that come to you easiest and then you, uh, so you, so you find those and then you build on it from there. So you're increasing your own capacity by uh, finding your strategies. And the only way we un even understand strategies is if we're given the opportunity to use our own strategies. Right. Right. And it's not, okay, so do this strategy and then you have to memorize the strategy before you, you know, in order to apply it. You want it to be, you want the strategies to be very innate, to be there, you know, coming from their thinking. Right, right. You can nudge them. There's always ways that you can nudge them. But, um, yeah, open-ended problems or questions are the, are the quickest way into that. Okay. Right. So um, I think we're getting to the time here, and I, and I know uh, we're, we're over an hour, well over an hour, so we should probably... Um, start closing out but thank you so much Moni <laughs> I call her grandma so much because she's grandma grandma Moni too to my kids but um yeah I'm so happy to have you on and I feel so grateful that you're on and that I've have a great mentor right here in my family to to help and support and to ask questions to myself and and learn a ton so thank you very much from the bottom of my heart um you, I will include as much of the references that you in in the show notes, including the link uh, from the your friend that you had some of the the problems and open ended problems as well. Uh, John Holt, uh, Joe Bowler. Uh, I've tried to make notes as well, so that all of that's in the show notes. So if you're listening, you can go to the show notes to find some of those examples, ideas, and readings as well. Um, and then, as well, if you have any questions. Uh, I don't, I don't, do you want yeah. your email address yeah, or, okay. <laughs> so I'll, um, if you can, I'll, Moni will give your email, her email address if you want to contact her and ask any questions as well. And um, so I'll let you do that now. And then maybe if there's 
any advice that you'd like to leave for parents as we close out that are home educating and are uncertain? Um, any last tidbit? I know you. It, this was fantastic and you gave so much great advice all throughout, but is there anything else that you would like to leave them with and then leave your email so then they can email you? <laughs> Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Robin. Thank you for having me here. I'm, uh, I have to say that uh, I, I, whenever I'm with Robin, I get very excited about education <laughs> again. Um, being retired, I don't have an opportunity to use it as much as I would like. And um, so I really appreciate the opportunity <laughs> to get excited about education. And really, we're both big nerds in that. We could talk about it all day long, to tell you the truth. But <laughs> Yes, uh, and we often do. So um, it, it's nice to share it. And, and I, I'd be very, very happy if, if anyone had any questions for me that they'd like to spring or, or if you want some help finding some, um, some resources or um, any, anything else like that. Um, my email address is, and Robin will post it as well on her show notes, but it's uh, M-O-N-I-E underscore R-O-B. So it's Moni underscore Rob at hotmail.com and uh, I'd be happy to uh, if, if I can help you in any way by all means I'd be happy to one of the one little bit of advice that I really would like to to not advice but just something that really helped me to uh, to solidify the whole math learning thing and that is do first and talk later and this was a this was a a, a line that um, our instructor one of our uh, instructors during the math um, master's course uh, Peter Lilladell and he's at the Simon, at Simon Fraser University and I'll include his email address or not email sorry he might not appreciate the emails <laughs> but I'll include his web page and name spelling because it it's um, uh, European and so there's uh, anyways I'll include that but he always said do first and talk later because um, it's like if you if you provide too much talk too much information that's when kids tend to shut down from it what you really want is to create the 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 curiosity the the opportunity for for them to uh, explore their own understanding and ask questions because learning how to ask questions mm -hmm. is a really key thing in learning anything, I think, but mathematics in particular. If you give them all the information ahead of time, then they tend to shut down or take less responsibility for it. But if you give them a little bit, just have them do it and work their way through it and then ask the questions. And I think that's just a, a good sort of education mantra anyway do first and talk later yeah yeah because it, it applies to so much so maybe you. maybe we'll call the episode that math do first talk later <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a it's a good uh, a good uh, motto for sure it is thank you so much um i know everyone will enjoy this episode and yeah i thank I you <laughs> i hope so i hope i didn't get carried away with the talk talk too much no. but i have a an endless pit of it i'm afraid <laughs> <laughs>